Ow, I've just stuck my tail. <laughs> Sorry, ow. Fuck me, that ow, that really hurt. I... I swear to God, Jasper, you make this a fucking cold open, I will kill you. Welcome to the Social Review Podcast. I'm your host, Jasper, at JasperCH on Twitter. Uh, and welcome to what is the first episode of two episodes coming to you this week. Two for the price of one, or none, because this podcast is free, because we believe in universal basic services over at the Social Review. We're going to be talking about tech, uh, technology, our relationship with technology from political and socialist perspective, how it influences our ideological thinking and personal development, our mental health, uh, and also our career opportunities in some cases. So in this episode, uh, myself... Lines at that interlace on Twitter. And uh, Pete, um, which is at Peter Whitehead 5 on Twitter. Are talking about ideological influences in a conversation which covers everything from new atheism to twitter to dominic cummings and super ai uh and then later on joe uh at steamed hams on twitter and julia uh and beth at languesbians on twitter will be talking about digital democracy from which this episode title derives enjoy and we're kicking it off with a conversation about how our ideologies our political ideologies have been influenced um by being so very online, uh, as well as a little bit about our own personal developments. Um, so when I was pitching this idea to the Social Review podcast group chat and gauging interest and who would be keen in talking about it, Peter, you were like, I am so keen. And if I had been born slightly later, you said that you would have just been, become fully fash, fully fascist. Um I have to agree with you. Um, I've been very online for a very long time, almost 10 years, really. Um, and when I was much younger um, and I was doing online blogging and journalism in the pop culture and film world, um, I was far too young to understand politics beyond just Tories bad. And that inevitably led me to spaces where people were much more further to the right and much more libertarian. And I didn't necessarily know that I disagreed with that at that point. And I you know, like like you, I think I went through my libertarian anti-feminist streak um, around like the ages of 14 to 16. Um, and likewise, on the other end of the spectrum, being involved with projects like the Social Review and um, interacting with other left-leaning people online has maybe much more left-wing than maybe I would be otherwise um, if I was very offline. Um, so, Peter, do you just want to talk a little bit about your experience for when you were younger um, engaging with like... Um, political discourse which is a little bit further to the right and and what that was kind of like yeah so i, I want to clarify that i am in fact much better now um i, I have still never logged off but uh <laughs> but, but no, no longer subscribe to the terrible views i had as a teenager i think the internet is a really interesting space in terms of the way that discourse and political discourse happens i think i think there's two really important things about the way the internet is made up that make that the case. So the first thing I think is the element of identity play online. Baked into the culture of the internet is the idea that you don't necessarily know who you're talking to. Be you know, I don't want to sound like a sort of early noughties like infomercial, you know, like trying to, you know, stay safe on the internet. But you know, you don't you don't know who who you're talking to and so much of like chan culture and forum culture was fundamentally about either pure anonymity 
or taken on a sort of persona that didn't necessarily have to correlate with what you were or who you were in the real world. And I think one of the things that that allows is, you know, that element of identity play is really cool because it allows for all sorts of good things to happen. But I also think it allows for a lot of people to express more virulently right-wing views or more hardline positions than they would if the discourse they were participating in was embodied, which, as I say, is the most like grad school sentence I've ever said. Good God. Um, but yeah, like, you know, there's, there's a really good book that sort of deals with bits of this, um, The Ambivalent Internet by um, Whitney Phillips and Ryan Milner, which is really good for people who are like really interested in that sort of thing. So I, 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 th I, think, that, I think that's the first thing. But the thing, the other element of it is, I think one of the fundamental things about the internet and the internet at the time I was using it as a sort of teenager was the way it was incredibly good at creating an other that you could be really, really angry at. I think for teenage boys, I mean, teenagers in general, I just like being a teenager is just really fucking shit. Like, I don't know. I don't know how much of this speaks to the fact that all my mates are like wet and bookish types, but like most people I know did not have a great time of it as a teenager. And I think for a lot of teenage boys in particular, that ferments into a kind of very generalized anger. And I think one of the things that the internet was really good at doing was pointing that anger at things and telling you that that was the problem. So in my case, I, you know, I was very online as a teen, um, sort of found myself, you know, played a lot of video games, like hanging out with my mates was the sort of, you know, a lot of that happened online, whether it was through like Facebook Messenger or MSN or forums or, or what have you, like a huge amount of my friendships were either online based or massively sustained by the internet so i think the discourse that came out around around that time which is when you really started to see the sort of burgeoning anti-feminist movement which i think grew out of the um new atheist movement a huge portion of that was focused on destroying people. And that's something you see to this day, right? So, you, you know, you go on YouTube and there are 100,000 videos, which is like Ben Shapiro or Jordan Peterson destroys, owns, breaks on the wheel of fucking logic. Like, you know, Ben Shapiro, like, owns 17-year-old college kid who's already crying, right? Like, like this is, like, a huge... Thing that exists this idea of there is a binary opponent that you have to go and destroy and i think that when you're a kid and you're really angry and you exist in an online sphere where politics starts to get discussed so for me a big part of that was actually like tumblr which i think everyone sees as a left-wing space and okay sure it primarily is my experience of tumblr was that one thing you'd notice quite quickly is People who were older and probably had a bit more education and therefore could talk in a certain I've attended like a crit theory seminar way would have a huge amount of social capital in sort of lefty Tumblr spaces. As someone who is kind of in them, it was really easy to start to feel like really shitty about that because you, you know you don't have 
the vocabulary or the critical framework to actually engage what's being said. And you just sort of feel like this is a world that's not for you. And you combine that with the fact that, and I'm not at all doing the whole, like, SJW's a bad thing. They're not. I, I, I'm not. I think what, what ends up happening for teenage boys is you lack the critical framework to understand what being told that male privilege exists. You lack, you lack the critical framework to work out what that might actually mean. And you say, I'm fucking miserable. These people are telling me that I have all this stuff that I don't feel I have. These people are lying and out to get me. And then it's very, very easy to fall into a community that only amplifies the shittier, more extreme bits of people you don't like. And therefore your main identifier becomes being against that. That was a huge thing on Tumblr, like anti-SJW culture. And most people in that, if you ask them, you know, why don't you like, you know, the left or, you know, their term, SJWs, they'd say, oh, and they'd normally cite this, like, you know, outrageous example that was very clearly like someone on their side LARPing as a left winger. But because that was, that was the only exposure you'd end up with because of the self-selecting network you'd built, you'd, you were, it was really easy to convince yourselves that like 15 year old kids in denver were like an existential threat to your life and i think that's a really compelling narrative for like angry teenage boys that there is an existential threat i need to like <laughs> i need to fight it and the way i fight it is fight like posting a lot and never logging off never logging off is one of our main policies at the social review <laughs> um lines uh I want. I wonder how how do you respond to that question? How like how has being online, being in digital spaces, influenced your political ideological ideological development? Can I just ask you both a question? You've mentioned spaces, and I was wondering if you were willing to sort of say what were the online spaces for you? Because I have some I have some stuff to say, but I kind of want to draw on your examples. So yeah, what were the spaces online that you were part of? Yeah. So basically, um, I was. Active in various uh, superhero comic book themed forums, and there would always be like political threads in those kind of things, or just like people offhandedly discussing politics. So that was where that engagement came. I was also met people on Twitter who were friends at the time, aren't really friends anymore, um, who would have been much more libertarian or further to the right than me. Um, so in like interacting with them, that would. Um, that that influenced my ideological development so it was like forums which weren't ostensibly about politics but had political features um because people just want to talk about politics um and and twitter really i guess so been online since like around anywhere between 2008 and 2010 can't remember exactly spent most of my time sort of like a lot of time on tumblr lot of time on 4chan you know various like video game forums and stuff i was interested in yeah i'd say I'd, I'd say those were like the primary sort of drivers as it were cool yeah so that's kind of what i thought and I, the reason i want to talk about that is actually i think you guys are both <laughs> generations of bullshit but actually you guys are on the oldest end of gen z or zoomers or whatever you want to call them but i'm not i mean i'm 27 so i am in the young end of millennials 
so I was first on the internet in 2003. You know, I know people who have been on it a lot longer than that. But I think it's probably worth talking about the cultures that have come before a little bit. I mean, many people have written better potted histories of the history of the internet. But, you know, I was online, I think the first community I remember being a part of was Game FAQs and a spin-off Zelda role-playing forum. That was in about 2003. And I was sort of on the internet, and I, I pretty much haven't logged off in the last 16 years, right? And I was on various stuff. I didn't really use 4chan that much, but I was aware of it and I went on it occasionally. I, I think there's at least one sort of vaguely famous 4chan event, which I remember being like online as it was happening for. Um, but I didn't really post. Uh, I was aware of something awful, but couldn't afford the 10, 10 books to join. But I was sort of kicking around forum culture for a while. Uh, Live journal was a big part of my online space stuff. I, I'm going to talk about the ideology stuff in a bit, but I kind of want to give this context. Uh, and live journal was really important for me. I mean, so when I was young, I'm trans. I'm a trans woman. When I was sort of in my teenage years, I hadn't. I knew I was queer from I would say about 13, 14. Um, and I think through the internet was kind of how I first discovered that, and I think that is an important aspect of things too. Uh, but I didn't come out as trans for a lot longer. But I didn't quite have a... Uh, you, you know, you interact with the internet differently, I think, if you are... Even if you're a queer boy, but especially someone like me who was... I think dealing with feelings that she didn't really even understand at the time. Anyway, Live Journal was interesting to me because it was much more a... or felt much more of a female space. In, in many, many ways it was. You know, there was the fandom communities that existed there, and it was probably through fandom, um, which later became some of the stuff on Tumblr. There's something that happened in 2009 called Race Fail 09, which was broadly, um, uh, you know, look it up online, I think it's better that people look at better accounts, but broadly it was a time, in 2009, there was a large argument, cross-fandom, cross-fandom communities, and it was broadly like, the first time I, as a, a white teen in Sheffield, right, I really thought about like critical race stuff at all. Uh, I think basically some people were racist in fandom, some other people were angry about, justifiably angry about the fact that people were racist and it all got very heated. Um, I guess so I think that's the first time I really remember, I, I, you know, there's the first time I think I, around them that I remember reading the term person of colour, which is I think a term that originally originated in the US, and so maybe that's how I thought it. But it was definitely through like live journal and fandom that I started to be aware of these things. I think around that time as well, Probably a little before I was there was a website called Soda Stream Soda Head I think Soda Head just some kind of inane polling website like you, you could vote yes or no on questions and comment beneath it was great because it was basically it was around the time of the election and you know I, I found out that you could basically I, I was sort of fascinated by uh, you know Republican voting Americans at that time and just and I, and I was still kind of young enough to know that you should to to, to think that arguing with people in the comments was there for a productive use of my time. I remember that happening, and it was probably around this time I started to gain political awareness. It's very hard to look back and sort of go, this is when I start to be more aware of stuff, because actually it's more like a rising tide. I think I started reading, I started using Tumblr at some point, and that definitely accelerated my political awareness. I think there's a part of my nature that's always a bit, not cynical, but sceptical of new things. And so, you know, I think it's very easy with any ideology to sort of fall headfirst into it. But there is something about my character that means I... I'm not saying I'm rational and I rise above it, that's absolutely not true. I actually find it a struggle to really engage with stuff, because there's always part of me that goes, hmm, not sure. And, it, and I'm attracted to ideologies that sort of allow that kind of questioning. I flirted with new atheism. I'm not an atheist now, uh, but I flirted with new atheism. You mentioned, of course, that it's Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson talking about these things now. What's really fascinating to me, of course, these people are not atheists. I believe Ben Shapiro is uh, an orthodox, a practicing orthodox Jew. 
uh, Jordan Peterson, I think, has some slightly weird beliefs, but I think he's broadly Christian, question mark. Um, I don't think he's certainly not an atheist. So I, I found it really interesting the way in which people's relationship with religion and religion as traditionalism and all these kind of things all sorts gets pulled together. And it's weird. Yeah, I, I actually, I, I, I totally agree. A big part of that pipeline between like new atheism and reactionary sort of mindset was, I think, the sort of culture of the new atheists, which was not necessarily the prominent ones, right? But when you think back to like sort of like the skeptic channels on on YouTube and stuff, where you know they would debate creationists and own them. I so I, I think that's where you you know you see the first strings of you know bits of the internet being obsessed with destroying their opponent in debate. And I think that kind of morphs into what we have today because there just aren't enough creationists to who are willing to debate like weird men in their bedrooms to like satisfy the audience need. So I basically think, you know, if you're running like an atheist channel, like let's say you're Thunderfoot, right? Who like ran quite a prominent, like sort of like skeptic channel, right? Once you finished like debunking the creationists and if you have a following that is primarily male and primarily angry i think dunking on someone like anita sarkeesian or making up like horrible things about feminists you meet online i think that's a really profitable way to go that ties into an already existing culture like i think the atheism and skepticism was all often quite shallow and i'm not saying i mean okay there are people who are still atheists or whatever but like the point is it wasn't I think my understanding of religion is much better now. So I think my, the understanding of religion I gained from new atheism, even like people who actually wrote good essays, was still very, very rooted in a, a reaction to essentially Protestantism, and specifically quite a lot of the quite a lot of like evangelical Protestant, like specifically you find in certain forms in the US, and actually religion is much bigger and broader than that. And also like people have had theological thoughts before, and I kind of understand now uh, why people got so frustrated with Richard Dawkins because he doesn't really engage in any of that. Okay, so I, the one thing I want to talk about, which I think has informed my ideology, is political compasses, which are obviously hilarious, right? And, and political quizzes in general. Like, political compasses are inherently hilarious, right? Especially, like, the one that everyone knows, because basically it puts almost everyone, like, left libertarian, I think, because that's where the politics roughly are the people who made it. And so that's kind of what, you know, the questions are quite badly written. So they're an endless source of mockery, which is really funny. But actually, they also let people identify as stuff in a more nuanced sense that people really like having an identity hook on to. You have these more advanced political quizzes now which say this is your precise political flag and these are the things you believe. Or not the things you believe, but these are the ideologies you, you, you get access to. I think that's really fascinating because, you know, that idea has helped me. You know, I, I have consistently scored in like the bottom left quadrant of that kind of thing. That's kind of where my politics lie. And I kind of loop round and round. I think there was a period in my kind of early 20s when I'm absolutely moving more towards the centre and I've got to gone back back towards the, the bottom left now. Recently, you know, I've been following one where people on Twitter who sit in that kind of libertarian left or like um, anti-authoritarian left space. And it's been nice to actually reconnect with what is essentially my instincts, even if, of course, like any wet member of the soft left, I'm a social democrat at heart. Uh, or rather not, maybe not a heart, but only in everything I actually do in my actual praxis. Um, it's been nice to sort of remember that there are identities one can have. And I think we, 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 we shouldn't forget that in many ways, ideologies are also identities. They're things people latch onto. And you, you, can, you can latch onto an identity, an ide ideology hyphen identity, 
before you believe the things and then you change your beliefs to morph in it. We have this assumption that belief precedes identification. I don't think that's true. I think actually it's often the other way around. And identification precedes belief. Um, we like to believe we're, we're essentially rational and we sort of come to conclusions and then we start identifying. I, think, I just don't think that's true. I think it's quite old, you know, like like what's before came before my time. I mean, you had like Usenet forums and all of this kind of stuff. I think these stuff has been going on for a long time. You know, I think of the truly dark, weird corners. People who are in the 90s, like, makes protective sign Nick Land and these sort of weird right accelerationists. I don't like these people. I think their ideas are very dangerous, but sometimes they did anticipate the chaos that was to come because they kind of saw the things that technology could do to the notions of ideology of connecting us to ideas and of what it meant to live and in those cases perhaps they just they fell in love with the nihilism of it but like people could see back then what was going to happen and i found that interesting because it absolutely didn't prevent it from happening there's been so much discussion of religion i had this is like a massive education and how much um how big the relationship was between new atheism and being online i had no idea um learning stuff on my own podcast building building off what we've been discussing with ideologies and how ideologies relate to identity like you were saying lines um i want to edge slightly into the realm of hypotheticals and talk about how um some major political ideologies and political forces have emerged as a result of the internet specifically so the one which comes to mind uh for me and i think probably for most people will be the alt-right um and in many senses it is repackaged old strands of ideological thinking nazism um into uh into a 21st century set of clothes um but those kind of people were able to meet and meet quickly and connect their opinions quickly and easily because they were on social media and on forums like 4chan so and so if you take those platforms and you take the internet out of the equation then the development of right-wing far-right ideology looks radically different in the 21st century and the same can be said for the left the social review would not exist were it not for Twitter, basically. That access to uh, either ideas and opinions and being able to find like-minded people very easily through algorithms on social media has enabled spaces such as the social review to exist. So it is true wherever you sit on the political spectrum and, and, and you know, there will be equivalents for centrists as well and liberals and, you know, uh, centrist labor types. Um, so I want to open this up to you both. Um what would modern ideological developments look like were it not for the internet? Okay, so first of all, I, I think it's really hard to know. Uh, I think it might be, might be, big statement, might be impossible to know. I'm not sure you can look back and say, imagine that the biggest, one of the biggest technological innovations of the last 30 years hadn't happened. Well, imagine what things would be like. I, I can't imagine it. I can't imagine any of this. You mentioned that the alt-right has repackaged fascism, and that is kind of mostly true. But a friend of mine who's been involved in kind of anti-fascist politics for a long time, arguably since she was like three years old, um, says to me that we should be cautious of assuming that the tactics that worked last time will work this time. I think that's definitely true. They have mutated. They've gone to weird and strange places. You can draw a straight line from 4chan to gaming to and that kind of and new atheism to the gaming to gamergate to the alt-right. 
that these things are true, possibly with weird stop-offs in like the near-reactionary sphere or less wrong along the way. These are inherently online ideologies quite often, so I'm not sure you can disentangle it. Perhaps the answer is look at the places in the world where people are less connected, because obviously this is a very certainly Western-centric and, and maybe even Anglophone-centric view that we have, is not necessarily right. Look at different places and see what's happened to fascism. But I think there are common currents. I think it is interesting how the left has developed as well. I think it's been shaped by onlineness, not necessarily often for the best, I think. It's very easy, I guess, to argue a lot about nothing at all and not do the work. We have to do the work if we are to, you know, defeat evil, not to sound overblown. I think in the case of the alt-right, I think that is inextricable from the internet. There's a more obvious pipeline, I think, from online culture to the alt-right existing. And I think, you know, if if you trace back the sort of, like, primary spaces online where the alt-right gather, you'd probably go for 4chan's poll as, like, a big influencer in this space. If you go back to that, in 2010, those guys who support in Ron Paul, he, he, he is the sort of, you know, he is the person who is having memes cranked out about him. There's the sort of Doom Paul stuff. Those people inhabiting that same space five years later are fully fascist, right? And, like, Yes, they're supporting Donald Trump, but also, like, these are people who are now arguing, like, Trump's not gone far enough and all sorts of properly horrible shit. And I think understanding that pipeline is to understand huge parts of internet culture. Because I think you have people who are angry and who fundamentally believe in the market as a way of... Maybe I'm generalizing. These are broadly, I think, disaffected young men. And I think these are the, the, the these are young men who maybe aren't hugely political, but they don't but they 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 probably lean faintly libertarian so far as they don't like the idea of people telling them what to do, right? Which I think not to, you know, go off on a theory tangent, but I I I think broadly speaking, that is probably one of the effects of living under like why alienating late capital? These people fundamentally believe in the market. They fundamentally believe in people not telling them what to do. Any attempt to make the internet more well, or anything they're interested in, I think it's one of the reasons that, you know, it's one of the reasons I think that Gamergate got so much traction, was that these people saw an intrusion onto their lives and that rubs against what they they believe in. You know, and Gamergate was a truly horrible movement because these people were so fundamentally unable to deal with the world not being as they wanted it to be. And they can't chalk it up to capitalism because they're people who fundamentally believe in the market. So when something they don't like happens, they have to react against primarily social forces, which is why, you know, the, most online fascists don't really have an economic argument. What they have is the hatred of certain social groups I think that is something that the internet has always been very good at creating, as I sort of said earlier. Second, secondly, I'll be very quick. I also think it does have a hugely positive effect. Um, I, I've 
since the age of like 16, 17, I sort of grew up my edgy, you know, edgelord teenage phase and became broadly on the left, joined the Green Party, had a nice time, got a bit sick of losing elections, genuinely thought at the time that, you know, Corbyn sounded quite good, started looking at Labour, but the sort of need to not lose elections meant that I ended up basically just like becoming a Blairite and thrown in with progress. Which, you know, who are, who, who are perfectly fine people, and I think, but I, I do think the main thing, I don't think I ever really believed in that. I think the main thing that drove me towards that was just the absolute fear of losing elections, having been a Green, and then watched, you know, Miliband lose. It was just this horror of like, oh, I can't, we can't ever lose elections. These are a wing of the party to talk about, um, you know, the, the need to win elections all the time. These guys are great. But then, you know, meeting the Social Review over Twitter, and the Social Review, obviously, I'm biased, but... I think it's a hugely and, 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 and things like it you know we're not we're not the only ones doing positivity but i think we're in a hugely positive space i remember you know i was reading some of the early stuff that was put out and it was all this sense of it was all this stuff about basically a better world is possible and that had and you know being able to you know write articles for the social review and you know make friends over twitter like one of my best friends who is now my housemate like we met we went to the same uni but basically only became mates because we ended up like tweeting each other and stuff my, my politics shifted back to where i think they have kind of always been which like lines is on the sort of not to use political compass but yeah like sort of left libertarian side of things because a social review let me explore that in a really nice space i have the exact same emotional connection to the social review i think i started following the people i'm following now i started to see a few of the articles going around and really as you say exactly, I mean, I kind of existed in this space. I left the Labour Party and been in it for a bit because uh, of Tristram Hunt before 2015, because I was a teacher at the time and he was really crap. Um, I joined again during the 2017 election because I wanted to be involved, but I didn't really have much hope for election prospects. And then we did a lot better than we thought, and I was like, that was really good. But I think social review started to make me go, okay, there's, there's a chance here that you can articulate for something which feels positive and good and not like I'm fighting shadow left-wing battles from 30 years ago, even if we are, actually, I, I don't know if we are, but like, uh, that's advocating for relatively radical policies, like abolishing the Home Office that sort of feel instinctively right for me and that I didn't really see anyone else doing, and that felt really good. As you say, it's that positivity, say, articulating that a better world is possible. I believe that shy bands get no sweets, and so I think we need to have we, we, you can't say, I want X compromise position, because what you'll get is what's midway between the shit you've got now and your compromise position, and I think it's really good. So I was thinking about other communities that exist online, and I just wanted to ask a question uh, to, to either both of you again. Have you ever read what Dominic Cummings' blog role looks like, so the blogs that he links to on his blog? I've unfortunately read his blog, but not the blog links. Yeah, I, like likewise, I've I've read his blog and oh boy, that's a man that doesn't log off either. But I've I've never actually uh, I've never read the blog links, which is probably all part of his grand strategy of sixteen-dimensional chess. I, I mean, I, I find Dominic Cummings quite interesting. I, I think he is not the figure that we mock him as. Uh, he's possibly more dangerous than that. Um, if you read his blog role, and actually, then if you reread his blog in that mind, pretty clear what his actual ideology is. So he has a bunch of mathematicians, Terry Tao, Tim Gowers, that I consider these very mainstream writers about mathematics, and often quite advanced mathematics, but writing for an accessible audience. Um, 
got the archive blog, a couple of other physics people. But then he's got the Machine Intelligence Research Institute. And like Elisa Yudowski, who's the guy who created Less Wrong, and Slate Star Codex, who's Scott Alexander, who's a guy who I would say bridges the gap between Less Wrong and he's not neo-reactionary, but like, I mean, he does have some weird opinions about genetics. And like, it's everyone in the other place the rationalists went, which is the weird Less Wronger... Um, I don't know if you know what less wrong is, but basically it's people who've convinced themselves that if they understand Bayes' theorem of probability, then they can like reason about why a computer won't torture them to death. Um, these are the um, singularities people. These are these are all people who are either scientists or mathematicians, which he definitely almost fetishizes. I would say he he's kind of obsessed with them. Um, or they are people who are writing directly or indirectly in this hyper rationalist poking towards singularitarian. Uh, utopian future which we must achieve at all costs AI will save us space I think that's genuinely what he believes I think he's clearly happy to do awful things to achieve awful stuff I think he's probably an accelerationist actually and what he wants to accelerate towards is kind of exactly that but I don't see this in any of the analysis so I'm talking about Dominic coming specifically because he is inexplicably uh, the chief advisor to the prime minister but like that's a community that exists only online, can only exist online, and it's not just exists online, but actually exists entirely tied up with modernity, modern technology, and a relationship with technology. It's the flip side, I mean, it's say, the flip side where it extends or touches upon some of the stuff that actual weird person Nick Land was saying, right? It's, it's all of this stuff. And we've got a man who believes, like, if you follow Elisa Yudowski, do you know what Rocco's Basilisk is? No. Basically, um... This is a, if you if you believe in uh, super AIs, you should stop listening because this will make you have an existential crisis. But also, I don't care. Your ideology is garbage. Um, so the idea is that um, in some point in the future, there will be some kind of hyper AI that's going to uh, you know control everything. Uh, and this might be good or might be bad, but it's probably going to happen. Um, and it will know if you helped to bring it about or not. Um, and as such. Um, if you understand the argument I'm about to describe, if you knew, if you understood that you could have brought it about, if you understood, then it's incentivized to simulate you in the future and like torture a simulacrum of yourself, which might be you right now. But in case uh, it doesn't really make much sense. But also because knowing about it is a thing that makes you imperiled to it, uh, like weird rationalists online freak out about it or did freak out this one time. Essentially, it's Fermat's, uh, it's uh, Fermat's wager, but like with giant supercomputers, it's really weird. But like that is what this kind of subcommunity of people, two very prominent members of which Dominic Cummings links on his blog, actually believes. They're the kind of people who believe that you have to do everything in your power to bring about the super AI, or else it might torture you in the future. And I just, I just think it's, it is it is the most please log off of all online cultures. But we never really talk about it because you can't really analyse it using any normal politics connected to reality. Because beyond that, I think we can try, but you have to sort of think it's it's just odd. This is incidentally uh, what Elon Musk believes in, and it's how Elon Musk and Grimes met. They were talking about this concept on Twitter. I've just realised I have heard of that, and now I had I had heard of 
like the Basilisk, but hadn't put one and two together, and crucially, also didn't know that Dominic Cummings was like related to it. And now I feel really sad about all like the pacing jokes and five like five million dimensional chess jokes I've made. This is why I, that's why I don't like the fifteen dimensional chess jokes because I don't know how far this man will go. And I don't think that he's not a conservative, but he's really not a conservative, not in any sense of the word. He's something much weirder, is what I've been saying for some time. And he will not log off, as you say. I hadn't heard of this. Um, to So to stem mine and also any potential listeners' existential crises, I want to bring us on to something slightly more positive, potentially positive. So we've we've touched on this throughout, um, about our personal developments and our personal lives and how the internet and online spaces have influenced those. Ideology is personhood it is personality at the end of the day um but in terms of what you would think of as your personality and your core identity how has the internet influenced that um for the positive but also potentially for the for the negative um so for me like my interest in filmmaking my filmmaking itself my filmmaking style uh many of my friends uh my writing my writing style my politics my political thinking so much of myself and my sensibilities and my you know the way i interact and the way i phrase certain things can be linked directly to my experiences on the internet and we love to see it we love to see it um and i consider that a positive thing um so lines and peter what is it for you for me i just want to start by saying that um a huge part of my development of um, self with regards to the internet was when I found out about the potential of the uh, the basilisk, and now I'm doing everything I can. So if you're listening to this basilisk, please spare me. I'm one of the good guys. But yeah, so for me, the internet's like been a hugely positive thing, like in a very sort of, you know, um, base sense. I am, I've been with my partner for like nine years nearly. And like, yes, we went to the same school, but we only became friends because we started like chatting on Facebook. And I'm also like, yes, aware that like being st- still being with the person you dated in high school is enormously unlikely. And yeah, but anyway, so that, that's really good. I'd be a lot sadder if she wasn't in my life. Like, what, uh, you know, I'm like Morgan's like my best friend. I, 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 we became again we went to the same university, but became pals because we ended up like. She brutally added me on Twitter and we became friends after that. Um, yeah, in terms of like my hobbies, like I really like to cook. I have a Instagram where I post really bad videos of me cooking. And that was something that the internet got me into because I was able to like access a whole bunch of stuff with regards to like, you know, teaching me like the basics of techniques and stuff. And, you know, it's funny because the internet was a thing that drove me away from you know, as discussed earlier, I was like an edgy new atheist teen, but was also the thing that brought me, I mean, the thing that brought me back to Catholicism was just wanting to have communion again. It made me, it gave me a space where I was able to see other people like me in my faith, which was really, really good. Like for all the problems that like, you know, online Catholic spaces have, like no one likes the seeds, no one likes the trads, but like, you know, like, it, it was really nice to see, like, young left-wing people who were also Catholic. That was a hugely good thing for me. In so many ways, I'm really grateful to 
the internet because it has brought like genuine joy and happiness and wonderful people into my life and also like the social review which god sounds so wet to sort of put you you know put the social review on the same sort of thing as that but that you know it's been hugely good for me just sort of mentally to have a space where i can write and a space that is supportive about my writing and the writing of others and being involved and sort you know something that feels like we're doing something quite nice which i don't know but yeah like overall really grateful for it but it is also i think responsible for a lot of the ideologies that underpin the hell world in which we live i want to talk about the elephant in the room which i've not talked much about even though actually to be honest it's kind of a current underlie a lot of this stuff it's a lot of how i want to counter this stuff which is i'm trans i think i probably would have transitioned if it wasn't for the internet but like meeting other trans people online existing in trans communities online which are often hellish and are often good i i, I help moderate a quite a nice small community discord community which is not terrible because we work quite hard to make it not so my transness and and coming to understanding of that and happiness with it online and finding community through that has really helped and has helped a lot more trans people that i know i think it's made a real big difference in a really positive way i think that's true actually of a lot of marginalized people in lots of different ways i don't want to talk a lot about it because actually to be honest, a lot of people have written very interesting stuff about this i think trans women's relationship to the internet especially tends to be trans women and trans feminine people are often different to trans men's related to it different ways for, for different reasons i think there's a lot you could say about this beyond the scope of this podcast but it's absolutely a thing for me actually a lot of stuff comes from real life i was used to be in the woodcraft folk which is like hippie lefty scouts that was something in real life and i do live action role play for my sins uh which is in many ways is bad but also is kind of my main hobby and i like people in it i keep touching this with those people versus via online facebook actually that's how i mainly use facebook i don't really see family on it it's mainly incessant arguments about larb but also I see people in real life so those are not communities actually based online but online certainly facilitates the latter. And I don't really want to talk about much about my own faith, but certainly I find being that happening in real life is important and an important component of how I express it. So for me, I'm not sure actually the core parts of my identity do come from the internet. I really like the internet, but I think I'm quite glad of that. I think the internet sort of gives us access to so much of what we can be because it gives you access to a large large percentage of human existence more than we would do otherwise and let's just shape ourselves in a way that we've never really had before we had this technology that we might not have forever that might disappear in our lifetimes i think we're possibly passing more and more into the generation when it becomes meaningless to talk about what you get from the internet because it is everywhere and it is us as i say i'm an old millennial i remember using dial-up you probably don't you probably remember a time about social media. My younger sister, who's 13, probably doesn't. The mark of when a technology has integrated completely into, some, into our lives is when we stop really being able to ask the question, how did that contribute to X? Because you can't pull it out. You can't point to it. It's just everywhere. And I, wasn't, I think we're essentially reaching that point now with the internet. <laughs> back. Uh, this conversation is going to be about digital democracy and the um, potential for digital platforms to democratise or otherwise the way that we live.
our lives. So Twitter and social media in general has obviously led to um, more people than ever being able to express themselves to an audience bigger than ever. Obviously, these tech giants are still massive monopolies. To what extent do we think that social media has extended democracy? And to what extent do we think it has threatened democracy? Beth, do you want to comment? I mean, one good thing about Twitter from like a journalistic point of view is that it's quite equalizing. I mean, different people have different numbers of followers, but if somebody follows you, then it doesn't matter if you're like an, a major editor or like Jeremy Corbyn or Toby Young or something. They're going to see your tweets as much as they will anyone else's. Hell well, of a party, by the way. You know, Toby Young, Jeremy Corbyn, major editor. Hell, and me, hell and me. of a fucking party. <laughs> In terms of access to journalism, I mean, I wouldn't be a writer, well, let's be honest, I wouldn't be a writer if Julia hadn't shouted at me and told me to start writing. But also, if I didn't have access to people who can commission people through Twitter, um, I think it's Stephanie Boland's advice for graduate journalists is to follow people on Twitter and start interacting with them because that way, when you email them, you're not just like a random voice out of the ether you're somebody that they know yeah i think it's easier to access um publications and to get published without having to you know go through a journalism degree or go to fancy parties and schmooze people or whatever the fuck people do what's what's interesting is if we think about sort of early internet stuff that sort of diy countercultural sort of californian libertarianism that sort of drove that and like that sort of um outside the mainstream and now the way that we sort of view the internet is we're all um operating on sort of mainstream major platforms uh where sort of anyone can sort of in theory anyone can sort of see what you're putting out there so i think that sort of shift from um being an alternative to the mainstream to just being part of mainstream culture is really interesting it's sort of the difference between being um cyberspace or the internet being an alternative to the real and it instead being sort of an extension of it now because of sort of everyone's on the internet you're like even if they're just on the internet to look at cat pictures and find out celebrity gossip or whatever like they're they're on all on the internet it's not just people with this utopian ideal of escaping the um, influence of both the state and capital. I mean, like, you said that, like, everyone is online now, nowadays. I'm not... It's almost as if there were two different internets. Because when I see the people I used to be friends with in high school, they have kids, and they have, like, you know, husbands and wives, and they're happy, and they're, like, they're not... It feels like there's two different worlds, and which is, like, political... Uh, internet and normal internet and then there's like this this weird cross-pollinization where like the worst part of political internet uh gets in contact with normal people so you have this very normy like experience of like being online and like you're online to show pictures of your kid or show pictures of like you know, aesthetic doors or something that you like. And and then you kind of, like, get in contact with, like... But you're not allowed to be an activist. This is what I'm saying. And then you get, like, this cross-pollinization with people who are allowed to be activists for the left or for the right. 
and they're often like not on the mainstream uh discourse stuff like they're not you know they're people like you expect to like hear from politicians saying things like either like very like marxist like influence or or, or like specific and kind of old school vision i know this sounds very tony blair but like you, you know what i mean like a very like old school Marxism vision of the world or like a very like your alt-rights and stuff like that. This is where where it gets uh, gets weird because we have the impression that everybody is like having similar internet experiences to us. But actually what's happening is like people who don't who aren't overtly political, they're like almost getting these seances from our world. You know what I mean? The sounds it's like the 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 spirit thing and and they say they say like this like the, like these weird things and and they just go like it's like 19th century victorians they go like oh i went to a seance and they, they, the spirit told me this and this and this this and now i kind of believe it talking about democratization without social media how would the social review exist i mean we, there would be a website but it would be a lot more difficult to have you have to advertise it through like email or something and nobody would read it i mean nobody does anyway but even fewer people would read it social review on geo sites i'm telling you it's making a comeback <laughs> and um you wouldn't have had people writing for it like people who've never written before you wouldn't have had big people writing for it and appearing on the podcast you know you can debate over how much the social review has contributed to the politics and political discourse but there are definitely voices which wouldn't have made themselves heard if it hadn't been for the social review and there wouldn't have been the social review if it hadn't been for social media. I'm moving about a lot in my chair, so sorry if you can hear that. What I've been thinking about is just like, I'm just gonna drop this hot take. Democracy isn't really that good. No, but like really, um, it's a joke. <laughs> Thanks for the clarification. We don't have like a, 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 a layer that like, fil- that we filters, democracy without filters, you know, like, absolute pure democracy which i feel like is like a libertarian thing is bad like i don't feel anyone in the left actually believes in absolute uh, like absolute 100 percent free democracy because we we're usually against hate speech right like there's one or two like people who are like absolutists about this i think we on the left actually believe on that and i feel that's the thing about the internet um there's a lot of positive things about having a democratic space where people like Beth can write, or people like uh, Joe can write, or like people who hadn't written before can write. You know, ordinary people like me and Joe. Yeah. No, but like, no, I mean it. Like, people who who feel daunted by the task of like writing for the first time, but have things to say. And with the social review, they have that space, which is is like, what kind of what I want from the social review is to be like a, a, a space for openness, a space for like people who are afraid of like putting their voices out there to like try to do it for the first time a couple times so they can like go forward and like do bigger things like i don't want the social review to be like a huge website that you know has a year to the labor leadership or whatever the fuck what i want is that for people who are learning how to like express their voices to like use their voice as well. And there, there's a lot of that in the internet. This wasn't invented by us, obviously. There's also a lot of like people who have actually very terrible opinions or, or who who realize that they can say the text of things that are subtext in, in um, society. Because basically like we live in like racist, sexist, 
you know, homophobic, whatever societies. But we usually only say those things as subtext. We usually don't say those things as text because it's very strong and because we've moved past a lot of like the the issues that made those things, you know, text. You know, like so in the case of race, like slavery made the whole like some races are inferior text. But when we abolished slavery, some races are inferior became still a subtext in society. But I feel that like with with like the internet they realized that they could say it out loud. They could say the, the subtext out loud and make it text. And people would not only be okay with that, but some of them would embrace it, you know? I don't think that the democracy we experience on social media is like... It's not like a true good democracy. It's a democracy that is established by either cowardly corporations who are too afraid to like kick out like people saying like outrageous things, you know? Because, you know, I'm sorry, Bolsonaro would not have been elected without social media. You know, people who are too afraid of, like, deleting these things. And the things he said were not, like, I think we should, like, cut the deficit. It, it, were, it were, like, torturing people for having different opinions is good. He was saying that outright in front of everybody. And, like, I cannot see why a corporation wouldn't cut it. Unless they were too afraid, too cowardly to do it, and too, uh, it was too profitable not to do it. Those are the reasons. So that w- that's not like true democracy, because that democracy is, is being done to like, it's being established by a corporation that nobody voted for to help, you know, oppress, you know, the voices of people who need help. And yeah, and I also sort of think, uh, building on that, I think it's more akin to a sort of, uh, a populism and sort of a, a democracy like i think that's what you sort of see in the way that these things function and and i know we've talked a lot about it it's sort of breaking down like access bar- barriers and things and sort of I, I think there is an extent to which it does that but i also think there is an extent to which it the sort of existing hierarchies are still enforced and if we think about as well sort of the amount of power um, that it gives to, say, Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook and whoever that guy is that runs Twitter. Um, like, they have, like, a lot of power over sort of, like, an international conversation. Like, they have so much control. They own all that data. Um, and to them, like, it doesn't really matter what, happening on there as long as they can they can sell it and like that is where sort of social media uh is a threat to democracy in the way that it it concentrates power in those people's hands and and all they care about is clicks and activity and and keeping you using their platforms so that's not necessarily particularly uh democratizing instinct Thanks for listening to the first episode of this two-part podcast. The music you heard, as per usual, was Sweet of a Mouth, composed by Kevin MacLeod, licensed under Creative Commons. If you did enjoy this episode, then please do let us know and tune in for the second part of our Tech Week special. Uh, The episode will be up tomorrow, so that's Friday morning or whatever time you want to listen to it, if you listen to it after Friday morning. Thanks again for listening, and uh, you'll hear us again very soon. Goodbye.
Oh, sweet Jesus, that... Uh, ow.